Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 2.8 is our text this morning. is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our passage this morning has explicit application to how we worship God. In particular, we, we receive a fairly simple command from God regarding how we approach Him both in body and in spirit. The Holy Spirit commands men to lift holy hands in prayer without wrath and dissension. Uh, The passage addresses both the posture of our spirit and the posture of our bodies. To emphasize the one without the other is to miss the point of the passage. Now, stepping back for a moment, we see that our passage starts with a therefore. Verse 8 starts with a therefore, which connects it to what precedes. The Apostle Paul's argument in the preceding verses is the reason for the commands, the charges he's about to give, right? So God taught us in those preceding verses that we are to do what? We're to pray for all men, for those in authority so that we might live in a nation where the Christian witness thrives. We went through that in last um, last sermon. Such is good because God desires, such is good, a Christian witness in a nation is good because God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. To that end, Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he was appointed to preach that gospel, that one mediator. He was, he was, Appointed to preach that. So the context then is one not simply of private worship, but of worldwide Christian witness. The gospel going out to the conversion of mankind. Okay? This is important. It's important to remember that when we come to this passage. That the context that the therefore connects to is the gospel and worldwide witness. He says, pray for all men that all men might come to a knowledge of God. And then connects the commands of verses 8 through 15 to that command. Many people want to limit this passage to public corporate worship. Though the context of the passage is wider than that. It has in mind the witness of the Christian in the world, not merely limited to the sanctuary. Okay, looking at our verse and the ones ahead, we see that the Holy Spirit gives commands to men, 
And this is the Greek word andros here, uh, the plural of oner, which means man. It's not generically human being. Paul could have used a word for that, and it's called anthropos. But he uses the word specifically for male, for man. And then in verses 9 through 15 to gunaikos, women. Um, Verse 8 is given to men. Verses 9 through 15 are given to women. Now, just that, just simply a distinction like that cannot be taken for granted today, right? Even in the church, we have a tendency to approach everything in a gender-neutral, egalitarian sort of way. We have godliness, but we don't have godly femininity or godly masculinity, right? We, we approach everything in generic categories. And so we, because of our, we live in a context where distinctions are being knocked down left and right, especially sex distinctions. We get embarrassed that there would be commands in Scripture that make these distinctions, these hard distinctions between men and women. God is called, but but remember this, God is called male and female, that fundamental distinction within mankind, he has called it good. He stepped back from his works and called it very good, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God has said, male and female, very good. Our culture says something very different. Male and female, at the best, superfluous. At the worst, demeaning and degrading. Uh, Mark 10, uh, Jesus comes and reemphasizes what is stated there in the first chapter of Genesis. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so he reemphasizes. So when scripture makes this distinction between male and female and gives commands that differ according to the sexes, it does so because God made that distinction and it was good. Our culture, our elites in colleges, think of our university situations, our politicians, right? Um, gnash their teeth at what God has called good. And so now in many states, so hated is God's distinction between male and female that they've passed laws to enshrine their sex anarchy. Men now go into women's restrooms and are protected by the law into women's locker rooms, and women go into men's changing facilities, etc., simply because they feel like the opposite sex. We might think it logical that unregenerate people might hate God's Ten Commandments because those commandments restrict their freedom to sin, but today our society is so set against God that We've moved beyond a hatred for his commands to a fundamental hatred of the way he made things in creation. So pervasive is this hatred of what God has called good that we have a hard time 
we have a hard time convincing our children of the fact that God had a specific purpose in making them either a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. They've, and we have been educated in egalitarianism, which is a principled lack of distinctions, by their parents who were not taught headship and submission by the word of God, by their schools. I mean, what other than school uniforms (laughs) make a difference between the teachings of males and females in our schools? Um, by entertainment, I mean, think of what entertainment has done to destroy the distinction between male and female. Um, I, I don't really need to even say anything about that. By our government, um, which has legitimated the marriages of men with men and, and women with women. And by denominational study committees, even, um, who give worth only to masculine callings then allow women to come, come close as they can to those callings, yet without the titles in front of their names. And then scripture says something like this, I want the men. And likewise, I want the women. And we are thinking, does not compute. We have no grid unless we have been taught by the word of God to understand this fundamental, creational, and glorious difference between the being, the biology, and the calling of men and the being, biology, and calling of women. In other words, today there is only godliness in a generic sense, but there is not masculine godliness. There are not commands specific to men. There's not feminine godliness or commands specific to women, even though Scripture continually makes this distinction. Right? Genesis 2 and 3, Proverbs 31, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Titus 2, 1 Timothy 2. All of them making distinctions between male and female. So we have to repent first of our egalitarianism, our gender-neutral approach to everything, or we will misunderstand and misapply passages such as what we have today. God has commands for men and distinct commands for women, and yes, a whole bunch of commands that apply to both. So in verse 8, the men, it says, in every place, so the men... The men, the men in every place, which I take to mean wherever people may be gathered to pray. The men in every place, wherever you may be gathered to pray, or like Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, which is another passage on sexuality and prayer, it establishes that there is no other practice among the people of God. In every place, this is what we do, right? The men in every place are commanded to pray. Now, what is prayer? Very quickly, the the shorter catechism gives us a good definition. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So to put it in, in the vernacular, prayer 
is expressing our desires, failures, and thanksgivings to God. That's what prayer is, expressing our desires, our failures, our sins, and thanksgivings to God. That, of course, is to be done in corporate worship. It's to be done in our homes. It's it's to be done when walking along the road. It's to be done, as Paul puts it to us elsewhere, without ceasing everywhere we might be. We are to pray all the time. And then Paul addresses the manner in which men are to pray. The men are to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now let's take the first thing first. Men are commanded to pray by lifting up holy hands. Now some take holy hands and spiritualize it, right? In other words, it has nothing to do with the hands, per se, but only with having a heart that is in the right place. Um, They place the emphasis on holy and forget about the hands, right? And of course, um, to spiritualize the temptation of every Reformed intellectual, right? That's what we specialize in, is, is spiritualizing passages to get beyond what is simply stated, okay? We like to think of ourselves as disembodied brains, but the testimony of Reformed men before our time makes it clear that they took Paul's command here to not only involve our holiness in approaching God, but also our actual, get this, physical bodies. Like the ones attached, and, and like the, the hands att- that are attached to our arms, and the arms are attached to our torsos. Those hands. Now I'll come to those testimonies in a minute, but does, does Scripture command certain postures in prayer? Of course, we're told to stand. Um, Mark 11 says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. So there's, there's um, uh, an example of, of standing to pray. Um, we're told to, we're given examples and we're told to lift up our hands. Moses said to him, as soon as I get out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord and the thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer. Then you may know that, that you may know that the Lord, the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 63, 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. There's that combination of praising God with joyful lips and the raising of the hands in concert. Luke 24:50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Right, praying for, praying for that was when Jesus is leaving, right, and he's praying for his apostles. We're told to bow or kneel. 2 Corinthians 29.30, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Ephesians 3.14, probably haven't thought of this passage in this context. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I'm always thinking about the Father part. But Paul is saying, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you. And then he goes on into a prayer. He's bowing his knees in prayer for, this, uh, for the Ephesian people. Psalm 96, 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. We're told to lift our eyes. Psalm 121.1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Psalm 123.1, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in heaven, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Right? That, in, that implies prayer. You're asking God, you're lifting up your eyes to him, you're pleading with him because he's high and lifted up. We're also given examples of people putting their face to the ground. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So there's, in one, two short verses, standing up, lifting up of hands, and also bowing down to the ground, with their faces to the ground. So we both see the people of God praying in particular postures, and we are commanded to pray. Show reverence to God through our posture by the command of Scripture. And our passage makes the command to men lifting holy hands explicit. Explicit. Interesting to note is that nowhere does Scripture ever give an example or give a command for the closing of the eyes for prayer. And yet, that is our universal practice. Every church I've ever been in bows the head and closes the eyes. Now, pragmatically, it may be helpful for you to avoid distractions, but nowhere is that commanded in Scripture. And yet we might want to get up on our high horse about it if we see our kids not closing their eyes or our neighbor not closing his eyes or something along that line, along those lines. But... What's strange to me is we, we are involving ourselves universally, almost without fail, in a practice that can't be found in Scripture, and then universally, almost without fail, not doing the thing that's explicitly commanded in Scripture, which is the lifting of hands in prayer. Men, we are commanded to lift our hands in prayer of all Of all places, it should be done, of all the places it should be done is corporate worship of God. But there is no such restriction here. We should be hand lifters in prayers in every place. Um, Now, I've, I've made this point elsewhere, but I'll make it again. Music is beautified prayer. Music is prayer. What we do corporately in our, in our worship services when we sing is pray. Okay, now, it, um, 
that's, that's what music is, is prayer. It is not a separate category. It's us presenting our desires to God through song, right? It's us confessing our sins before the Lord in song. It's us giving thanks to the Lord in song, which is just how I define what prayer is, right? It's exactly the same category. It's us, and so, and so I, I have often pushed us to raise our hands in singing. And I think, dear brothers and sisters, that it is because of this passage, commanded of men. Um, perhaps it's optional for women. But the command here is explicit for men. Now, again, it's, it's ironic to me that many who hold to the regulative principle refuse to obey this command of Scripture. They limit this passage to corporate worship, and then they refuse to obey its incorporate worship. Okay? Um, I want to see this passage as applying at least to corporate worship. And I believe it should be obeyed. Now, lest you begin, because of your fearfulness of raising your hands in worship, men, begin to spiritualize the passage away. Pay attention I'm going to tradition now to undergird the points I have made from Scripture. I'm going to Calvin here. because And why do I want to go to Calvin? Because Calvin, Calvin is universally condemned as a Reformed curmudgeon who, who wanted lifelessness in worship, right? And he gets, that, he gets that because he dispensed with musical instruments in worship, I think there were good pastoral reasons for him to dispense with instruments in worship. Um, he went to only scripture songs, right? He, they sang um, the Lord's Prayer. They sang um, the Psalms predominantly. And yet, I want you to hear what he says from a few places about hands, and of course, he starts in the right place. He's, he says, yes, holiness is important. Holiness is of first place. When we make prayers, we must be holy, right? Prayers are hindered by unholiness of life. But he doesn't dismiss posture, and, and he makes posture of second importance, but still important. Here's what he says. The inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer. What's in the heart? Right? That holds first place. Don't approach God with a filthy, unclean heart. But outward signs, kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting up the hands, have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members, all the parts of our body, for the glory and worship of God. Like, not just our brains. He says, like our feet and our knees and our hands and our arms. Use, you shall love me with all your strength, right? Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help. There is also a third use in Solomon public prayer because in this way the sons of God profess their piety and they inflame each other with reverence to God. But just as the lifting of hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility, we fall down on our knees. Right? So what, what happens in worship 
when we use our bodies is that we're disciplining our hearts and our minds in appropriate ways. Here's what he says in the Institutes. As for bodily gestures customarily observed in praying, such as kneeling and uncovering the head, they are exercises whereby we try to rise to a greater reverence for God. Here's what he says later in the Institutes. Let us take, for example, kneeling when solemn prayers are being said. The question is whether it is a human tradition which any man may lawfully repudiate or neglect. I say that it is human, and it is also divine. It is of God insofar as it is part of that decorum whose care and observance the apostles, the apostle has commended to us. But it is of men insofar as it specifically designates what had in general been suggested rather than explicitly stated. Later, again in the Institutes, stay with me here. He gets a little snarky here. He says, nothing prohibits a man who cannot bend his knees because of disease from standing to pray. I mean, isn't that, I, you know, before our prayer of confession, I say, those who are able, please kneel. Well, well, Calvin says, those who are able, please kneel, but if not, get up and stand. And then he says this, lifting up your hands as if he had said, provided that be accompanied by a good conscience, there will be nothing to prevent all the nations from calling upon God everywhere. But he has employed the sign instead of the reality for pure hands are the expression of a pure heart, just as, on the contrary, Isaiah rebukes the Jews for lifting up bloody hands when he attacks their cruelty. Besides, this attitude has, generally, has been generally used in worship during all ages. For it is a feeling which nature has implanted in us when we ask God to look upwards and has always been so strong that even idolaters themselves, although in other respects they make a, good, a God of images of wood and stone, still retain the custom of lifting up their hands to heaven. Let us therefore learn that the attitude is in accordance with true godliness, provided that it be attended by the corresponding truth, which is represented by it, namely that having been informed that we ought to seek God in heaven first, we should form no conception of him that is earthly or carnal, and secondly, that we should lay aside carnal affections so that nothing may prevent our hearts from rising above the world. Right? He's saying, lay aside the things that make you embarrassed. Lay aside the things that might think, make you think of this world. Do what tends toward reverence to God. So in other words, posture, says Calvin, weans us from carnal affections. They are attempts to use the body to rise to greater reverence for God. As I tell others, I discipline myself by raising my hands in worship. I make my hands buffet my heart into shape. Right? We are here before God. I should remind myself that God is glorious, even if it means using my body to do so. Ideally, the heart would not need my body to do that. But come on. Your flesh, right? And the spirit wages war against your flesh. There's still warfare. You have to undertake that warfare. 
Another quote from Calvin, it's lengthy, stay with me. But it comes from his sermon on this verse, and and this is very helpful. His main point is this. Posture disciplines our affections that are fixed on the earth rather than fixed on God. And here also, we must conclude that St. Paul, speaking of lifting up the hands, regards the matter that was used at all times when men prayed to God, namely, that they joined their hands together and lifted them up. Of itself, this imports nothing, but it is an exercise very good and proper if it be brought to this right end. I say it imports nothing of itself when we lift our hands, but the end is good and profitable, yes, and necessary. And why? We see how rude we are. We imagine always that we are too far from God and that he is not near to hear us. When we have this outward sign, it confirms to us that God is near to us when we seek him. And on the other side, we see also our slothfulness. We are so slack that we have to be stirred up to pray. And in such a manner serves us very well to that purpose. It is a very fit means to stir us up to seek God when we lift up our hands in this way on high. And again, we have need therewithal to pray to God, not as though he were an idol and required to be served in such a fleshly manner, but we must be lifted up above our senses, Yes, we must spoil ourselves of all earthly affections and all things that keep us under and hold us down here on earth. And because we have no wings to fly up to heaven, in that we lift up our hands. It is a sign that we must lift lift up our hearts high by faith. And thus we see how the lifting up of our hands to heaven is not a vain thing if it be brought to this right end and to his right use. So then... Let us learn as often as as we have our hands joined together and lifted up to heaven that it is to lead us to God in consideration of our weakness and to put us in mind that it is he only to whom we have our recourse and that we cannot have access to him unless we lift up ourselves above the world. That is to say, unless we withdraw ourselves from all passions and from all blockish and earthly thoughts, and fancies that we have, we must dispatch all these things away from us. He's saying that that's what lifting up of the hands tends to help with. And that is precisely why I have gotten in the practice of lifting my hands in song, is to get myself off of myself and onto the Lord, to get my mind and my heart placed in the right place. And so to raise the hands has the function of provoking the heart to the very holiness that is commanded to be made in making our prayers. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if we are proud in our posture, which is the easy part, if we're proud in our posture, how in the world are we going to discipline our hearts that are desperately wicked toward humility? Finally, notice what the Apostle Paul says. Pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Our prayers, our prayers should be free of anger toward one another. Have you ever prayed so that it can be heard, so that you can stab somebody in the back? Have you ever used prayer as a weapon? 
against your spouse, against your children, against a friend, against an Arminian, against a Baptist, against a homeschooler, against a public schooler. Um, Our prayers should be free from anger toward our brethren. Do not use prayer as warfare against them. You're praying to God Almighty. You are praying to God. Yes, others hear you, and Jesus prayed so that others would hear him, and that is a factor in it. But your prayers are being made before God, and they may, may not be for wounding others. And then it says our prayers should be made without dissension, and more literally without reasonings or doubts or speculations. Our prayers are to be faithful and according to the will of God, not according to our rambling feelings. Right? In other words, we must be taught to pray by God's word. Prayer is not to be an undisciplined barfing of godless emotion into the lap of God. Saying to God, deal with it. Right? That is not what, is it, what it's to be. Now, you may think that Job was barfing his emotions in the lap of God. But he has fear for God, and we have confirmation that he did not sin in what he prayed, right? From the very word itself. And so I'm not talking about heartfelt emotional prayers. I'm talking about superficial, not understanding what God desires for you at all sorts of prayers. Okay, our prayers should be free of that. Now we, just to conclude here, we're a composite of body and soul. Right? We are a composite of body and soul. And no one would read the scriptures and come to the conclusion that the body is superfluous. That is what the Gnostics taught. Right? The body doesn't, doesn't matter what you do with your body. Right? It's just evil. It's going to be evil. It can be defiled. Do whatever you want. What matters is the mind. Um, yes, of course, we can emphasize the outward to the exclusion of faith and the inward. Right? We, can, we can emphasize the outward and not be worried about the holiness of the holy hands. Right? And those who emphasize the outward to the exclusion of faith and the inward, that's what sacramentalists tend to do, right? They just want the action void of the faith, the infusion um, void of faith. And so there must be a right order to these things, um, but do not tend in either way, right? Don't, don't get rid of the bodies for the spiritual and don't get rid of the spiritual for the body. Um, hold the inward and the outward in proper balance. Allow the body to discipline the heart. Um, to push you toward reverence to God. And, and men, men, consider this command of Scripture. God would have you lift your hands in prayer. Prayer. 